Everybody listening, welcome to the Vobis Dude podcast, where we explore the lives of others and a culture from around the world. I'm here today with Erin Scotchless. She is a communicator, journalist, photographer, and uh, we've got quite a lot to talk about. So Erin, please give us a little intro. Anything else I forgot? Well, hey, Mike, thank you for having me on your podcast today. It's really exciting to be here. So yeah, you kind of got it. I'm a communication specialist, photographer, making my world into the environmental side of communications and kind of storytelling. And yeah, I'm American and I'm based in Berlin now. So that's a little bit about me. Let's just dive into it. What uh, got you into photojournalism? Were you a photographer at first or were you interested in journalism or did these two come together from the start? Well, I was always an artist, uh, so I had been doing everything from painting, photography, ceramics since I was probably 12. And then I got into photography in about 2013, so like my sophomore year in undergrad. I actually started in sports photography, so I went to a sports business school. Yeah, I just started to make money off of that. Um, I went to school in Florida, and... Mm -hmm. The school sports photographer, he also ended up working for the NFL. So I kind of just approached him and asked to like start shooting in the game. So I guess my first big gig was in the NFL, shooting for the Buccaneers. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not not gig, you know, but kind of like a student shadowing. And then, So you jumped right into it, though, like high yeah. level right away. Uh, yeah, I think I was kind of a go-getter from an early age and... Um, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. I wasn't really interested in sports photography to begin with, but uh, I really, the guy that worked in the NFL, he had also lived in Cairo. He had also lived in Istanbul, and I knew he had shot all over the world, so it was kind of like trying to make my way towards him, and yeah. I just approached him one day, and I kept showing up at all the games that he was shooting, and one day he asked me if I wanted to come along to a Buccaneers game. Yeah. And you had already bought a camera at that point, or what, what, do you remember your first camera that you used for this experience? I think I had a Canon T Rebel T3i, actually, like the sort of $700 pre-camera kits that you buy at a store. And then I was working with my university, and I, I got to use the university's equipment. And oh, then obviously perfect. when I went to shoot the Buccaneers game, I was working with the actual team, so... Then I was kind of working, like running different cards to different photographers around the stadium. And so I wasn't always just shooting, you know, I would shoot a little bit, but it was more like running cards, working with different photographers, selecting the pictures that wanted to go up on the web. Okay. And, and was there a steep learning curve or did you like naturally flow into it or what was it like? I think I was with taking pictures of people was really natural. It always came really natural for me. I think working in that specific environment, in the sports environment, it was a little bit more, a little bit more corporate, less personal, and, <laughs> and it's really fast paced. And I, I don't know a lot about football. So <laughs> it was really strange to all of a sudden um, have the kind of this artistic person that was thrown into the sports world um, because you have to know a lot about football to get the right shot, you know? So you, I ended up wasting a lot of probably definitely a lot of camera memory, but thankfully we were in the digital age and not in the yeah, that's true. film age. I was, I was very lucky, but I definitely didn't start out in a field that I was an expert in. I think I was always good at taking pictures, but yeah, I had to improve my technique a little bit on sports, but I was lucky because I went to a sports business school. So 
there were a lot of athletes in my school. And then I, I also worked taking pictures with a lot of the games and working with a lot of athletes. So it was kind of in my education to learn about that. And it worked to my advantage. That's awesome. So you started out in sports and then did you jump to a few other areas before you went into journalism or what was that journey like? Yeah, I, I was always taking pictures of people. So I, I would say before I did anything with journalism, I was always taking portraits. I would say the marketplace in Tampa was really heavily invested for weddings, for products, anything commercial or corporate. So a lot of the type of photography that typically pays. And this was sort of the market that I really started to indulge into. And then over time in my free time with my friends, it was more about, you know, the portraits, trying to tell stories, trying to captivate, you know, these emotions and more like abstract ideas. But definitely in my in my work experience, it was a lot more corporate, a lot more about um, shooting, you know, headshots for different teams, teachers, mm-hmm. games, weddings as well. I think weddings were probably my intro to like capturing emotions between people, capturing moments. So I left home when I was 16. I was an exchange student, so I went to Brazil. Okay. So I had already been in South America, and that was a little bit of the reason why I wanted to go back. Uh-huh. I had a fascination, so I wanted to start to explore a little bit more of other cultures, and I saw this. It was something more intuitive, you know? I kind of had my... I, I knew some people that had worked with the company within my school that had interned there. And uh, I was looking at them maybe for two years, you know, sending them emails. And then one day the the owner happened to be at an event and I walked, I just walked up and I approached him. I was like, I have to intern for you. You know, I got to work for you. And then you kind of just, and I was shooting the events already. So then they just kind of came into the idea well, you know, okay, well, you're a photographer. What we can, what can we do, you know? So then I kind of just started talking about the available skills that I had and ended up getting the internship. So that was pretty cool. So so you just ran up one day and you're like, I need an internship, please. And I mean, they knew who I was because I had been in, in contact with them before. But I think when you're looking for a job, it's, a, it's much different than like receiving emails from a person and then someone just coming up to you at an event and just saying like, well, I have to work for you because I can do this, this, and this. And uh-huh. yeah, hopefully that had to do something to do with the convincing. But I say that was my first gig in actual storytelling. Before that, I had worked in school, anything, doing anything the university told me to. You know, I had done mm-hmm. my own projects on the side with my friends, but it was nothing worth publishing. I would say it began in 2014. I mean, your work has taken you, you know, in the Amazon, you've been to Peru, Costa Rica, now you're in Germany. I mean, do you feel like these places have changed you in a bit? I'm sure they have in one way or another, right? Yeah, of course. I would say, yeah, culture shock is something that never really stops. It's kind of like a cycle, I guess for you as well, because you're also an American here in Germany. And uh, I would say probably the more difficult thing about culture shock is uh, reverse culture shock. So for me, um, when I left home, you know, it's just learning. The more cultures I think I've been in, it gets easier probably the first time I traveled and went abroad and came home and dealt, started dealing with like the initial idea of different culture shocks. Cause I felt I grew up in a, I never, I grew up in a family that only spoke one language, you know, mm-hmm. my parents like third generation Polish. 
So it was it was definitely a shock to come back from Brazil, but I would say now I'm I'm a bit used to the whole traveling thing, and I think it's so normal for our generation actually. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd say a lot of people I know, you know, have lived in different different cities, different countries, even. So, totally agree with that. Is there is there any part of Michigan, right? Is there any part of Michigan that you take wherever you go? Yeah, I would say so. I don't know, maybe the love of water because I grew up surrounded by lakes. So I mean, water was just a such a normal part of my life. Actually, I think Germany is the first place I've lived long term that's kind of in the northern hemisphere. So it's the first time having a winter, I guess, in in many years. Uh, so I would say especially now that we're in spring, I'm looking around and it's like, wow, everything reminds me of Michigan. It's like, probably because I've never lived anywhere else. But I mean, Midwesterners are very friendly, pretty open, pretty easygoing. I, I think I'm pretty American just because I spend a lot of time in Florida as well. So I think I have a little bit of a Floridian in me as well. What is Floridian? I think just typically American traits, you know, we like to talk about work some like probably more than other cultures i think i think other cultures tend to leave work kind of at the workplace and they have more of a separation mm-hmm. i think americans will tend to talk about work in all aspects of their lives I well, or say, like they'll talk at the bus stop like you can't do that to a german they, they will yeah. look at you so strangely yeah i'd say they it's interesting because being these the states is a little bit different. It's kind of a mix, not a mix, but somewhere in between, you know, Latin American countries that were so friendly. And then Germany, that just seems to be a little bit more cold. So, I mean, in Brazil, you know, everybody, it's so easy to approach anybody. Yeah. So coming back to the States, it was almost like hard. I felt like the the people that I was speaking to are a little bit colder, actually, than what I was used to. And then I come to Germany and then I realize like, that's not the case at all. But it's interesting because you kind of get to destroy all the little stereotypes as well. For example, I never, I never thought I would come to Germany and I found an incredible experience here so far. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm in the same boat here. I never thought I'd end up living here. How long have you been here now? I've been here uh, almost, I, I want to say four years, like either close to four years. Three, three, three and some, I think. Yeah, so I, I want to bring it back over to journalism. Like, so you've been in all these places and you've kind of been doing communications during this time. Do you feel like these parts of culture that we just talked about are, are ever mag- magnified when you bring a camera around? Like what I noticed is when I did documentary type of film, filming in German public space, people are a little more wary of me when they see a camera. Um, do, you, do you feel that way? between Brazil, US, Germany? Yeah, I do. I think Germany especially is super um, apprehensive to cameras, especially due to their history. For example, in Berlin, it's kind of, it's well known for a lot of having the most spies. Um, So in a lot of bars here, it's actually, you're prohibited from taking pictures, even selfies with your friends, Um, even going out and just enjoying normal life. So I do think especially journalism here. I was working on, um, in November, I went to the Berlin Security Conference and I had recently gone to a conference called Sudan Uprising that was talking about a lot of the issues going on in Sudan um, and sort of a fortress Europe, um, buffering violence. Um, So there were a lot of 
Sudanese uh, refugees that were also at this protest. And I went to go photograph the security conference and I photographed the protest, but uh, absolutely nobody wants their picture taken, of course. Uh, <laughs> I think there's also journalism in Germany compared to Latin America is so different as well because my German is not as good, you know? I, I speak Portuguese and Spanish, so I definitely think the communication, it definitely, people can be pursue, persuade to take pictures. Most of the time when you approach somebody in the middle of the street, especially if it's it's a conflict or some sort of tense situation, they're very mistrustful. So they don't, people don't naturally want their photo taken in a situation of a conflict, you know? It's yeah. not it's not glamorous. And a lot of the times that what we see in media is people aren't portrayed in a light that looks makes them look good. You know, a, a lot of times people look victimized or we kind of manipulate the lens to make them look more needy and it creates that sort of victim savior complex. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just been repeated so many times in the media that, yeah, people are really mistrusting of photographers when it comes to journalism. So yeah, in Germany, I would say I needed to learn at least a little bit more of the basics and have a German by my side to be able to have impacting photos. I have shot protest in Berlin that is just about, you know, going on in basic rights in Latin America, but obviously a lot of the protesters are Latinos, so it's a lot easier uh -huh. to communicate with them and take their picture. But yeah, just speaking of that one experience at the Berlin Security Conference, that was definitely a challenge. The girl, one girl that let me take her picture was the girl that was hosting the event. And uh, okay. you know, <laughs> if she did, if she doesn't let me take her picture, that's that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, and then I would say in Brazil and Peru, I, I had been working with teams. So like I said, the first time I went to Peru, it was with an internship. I was also working with an NGO there. So I did have the the luck of being introduced you know uh when you look at a lot of the projects that i've been working on they're not just solo projects i'm working with a team of local expertise and definitely local people in the area that i have some sort of connection with so mm -hmm. that i'm able to integrate and there's that way there's more trust because if you just walk into a situation as an outsider and expect to grab the whole story it's tough yeah it's not gonna happen not without a fight so how do you establish establish that contact with the quote quote unquote fixer you know the the person to introduce you to everybody who's a part of whatever movement whatever is happening do you do you have a process when you start this out i would say i let in the beginning when i started my work uh it's kind of intuitive you you can decide somebody that you want to trust but a lot of the projects that i've taken on I've also been invited to help collaborate with so it wasn't something I decided to do by myself and then take someone along with me for example um, I happened to be in Brazil during a time of a tragic mudslide in Mariana and it was in 2015 and I had some friends that were that one that was a professional photographer film cinematographer and director and another friend that was an anthropologist that were already going and they basically said to me you know do you want to come and I said, yeah, of course, you know, um, but definitely uh, I was not the local. For example, if an American just walks into a foreign situation and and tries to ask random questions, yeah, ask questions without the context in an insensitive way. It, yeah, I wouldn't say it would be successful. So 
I kind of branded myself in the different situations that I was interested in. Slowly over time, I brought myself over to the environmental side. But if you look at my pictures, um, there's a lot more of a human and storytelling context. It's not just shooting wildlife or shooting different environmental, I'd say, unemotional or any sort of environmental picture that doesn't have some sort of context around it. Typically, there's people in my pictures. And typically, those people are doing something. They might be talking about something. It might be in an interview. It's pretty cool. Did you make like a conscious effort to make your work portray people more and more as you went along as the as the years went by? Or was this something you felt like happened naturally? I think it it would happen naturally. Taking pictures like in the beginning, I when I started taking pictures of sports, I was always interested in people. Uh, it was more just having the trust to do it and, and the confidence. I definitely, looking back on some previous projects that I had, I did have the opportunity to shoot people on a much deeper level, but I wasn't exactly sure how to make connections so much to to establish, you know, portraits that created that told some sort of a story. And then it's kind of a not. It's in. It's a steady line. You have to be careful, right? Because. People need to be conscious of the story that you're, you know, how the outside world is going to perceive them. So yeah. Yeah. if you're trying to shoot anybody, especially in a situation of conflict, they might not be in that situation forever. Or if you're trying to shoot migrants or refugees, you know, you're kind of identifying them when you're taking this picture. And that's not the identity that everybody has. It's like if somebody takes a picture of you on maybe one of your worst days, you know, so that's kind that's of... True. It's also, and I think that's something that a lot of big name photographers make their living doing is kind of exploiting these opportunities of stress because in our media, we can be definitely a little bit more. We like to be shocked from the things that we see. So that's more of a demand. So I try to avoid that. I, I think that's the one thing I didn't really know when I first started out. I was like, all right, I, I was really interested in the technical aspect of putting images and stories together. But um, when you buy a camera, they don't they don't tell you like it's you need to have a lot of empathy and you need to establish a lot of trust between you and the person that you're putting this story together with. And that's like something I've had to learn quite recently. So that totally resonates. Yeah, I mean, me too. I think also learning to take pictures in the States, it's a completely different context. And in every environment that you're in, it's a little bit different, you know? Um, I got really comfortable taking pictures in Costa Rica, for example, and then I come to Germany, I realize it's not the same game. It doesn't matter <laughs> if it's photojournalism or if you're covering a certain topic or if it's even environmental photojournalism, you know? Like, mm -hmm. there's soft skills that have to be learned. There's different cultural tests that you have to pass to win people's trust. Yeah, I guess that's the, that's the big lesson I've kind of taken from just working with a camera. I wanted, since we talked about like earning people's trust, you, you had some really cool, I would say high profile interviews with um, one person being a member of EU parliament, someone being a cybersecurity expert. Uh, you kind of touched on this before, but how did you set up these really cool interviews? How did you get in contact with these people? How'd you set it up? Uh, sure. Um, I attended the Berlin Economic Forum that was here in Berlin in the fall. Uh, and I was looking at the list of people that were attending and I saw one of the names that really attracted my eye. So 
I kind of created the whole interview a couple of days before, and then I just approached her on the spot when I was um, at the conference. You know, I I just reached out to them, honestly. Uh, I kind of waited until she left the room for a moment, and then I tried to corner her down. So she's a Portuguese politician, Maria Joan Rodriguez. And I guess the confidence and then also perhaps being a university student, people feel a little bit more obligated to provide, if you provide some sort of contents of what you're trying to learn. I did use that to my asset to get mm -hmm. some time, but yeah, I just reached out to them. I think in photojournalism, you don't really have room to be shy. Uh, you really have to jump on the moment. The worst thing that they can say is no, and then you don't get a story, but you know, if they say yes on the chance, then it's a lot more rewarding. And those are the stories that you publish. So I would say you have to do your homework before and then know what you're talking about. And yeah, um, I was also super interested in a lot of the, the policy work that she had been doing. So I wanted to ask her some of her ideas on the future for that. I don't know how, how ready she was, but uh, she kind of gave me, it's interesting to see how I think most people like to be interviewed. Most people like to have questions asked about them. So unless it, you're asking them something like really dodgy questions, most people will feel obliged to, to sit down and speak about themselves and their work and what they do if they have the time. It's <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I've discovered doing this is like people um, in, enjoy interviews. And I felt like with some people I've, or most of the people I've interviewed or even had podcasts with, I've built up like stronger friendships and, deeper relationships with them, like after learning more about them through through this medium. So I wanted to ask a photojournalist where she gets her information from. Where do you consume environmental news um, especially? And where, where are your favorite outlets? By media standards or by official? I mean, when I'm prepping an interview, I, I definitely try to look at the facts. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to have too much bias in my interviews themselves. So if you look at a lot of the projects that I've done, um, I try to have people kind of explain their opinion. So if somebody wants to talk about deforestation and they might not have so many facts, I'll let them talk about their job experience and maybe the deforestation that they've seen in the area. So I kind of try to keep it more of a reporting angle. And then if I use facts, I use anything from World Resource Institute, United <laughs> Nations, World Bank. So Wikipedia is not safe. I think Wikipedia, I think <laughs> I found myself on Wikipedia once or twice, especially if something's a little bit hard to research. But uh -huh. yeah, I try, to, I try to look for the the legit bias and then I try to select some sort of expert in that area. So I try, I understand as a journalist that journalism has a bias. So I select kind of people in the area and tell their story. I try not mm -hmm. to make it too much on my story and my twist, you know, and then trying to turn into a story into a theme and then present it to some bigger media outlet. So I, I still try to, I don't know if that makes sense. Like I, I try to let people tell their own stories without writing too much of a bias into their background. And then if somebody has a connection to somebody that might be doing their PhD in the same subject, then I will get in touch with them and then we'll have a Skype conversation, that kind of thing. And, and if you take off your journalism hat, what, where do you go to, what kinds of formats do you enjoy um, when you consume storytelling and 
yeah well, where do you go for for your relaxation my relaxation uh, the guardian i guess the guardian that's probably my go-to i read the guardian every day i would say a lot of different storytellers that i follow individually with photographers so there's a great documentary called everybody street that that's based on new york photographers talking about their kind of experience um, so I like to follow more individual channels of people and different photojournalists or or what they like to do but like for big news media the Guardian I would say that's okay. number one okay and also speaking of news you know we can't talk today without talking about COVID-19 so you know we both I think I, we've everybody's seen how you know the the ceasing of travel and a lot of production has you know lowered carbon emissions around the world do you think there's any other effects the virus will have on the way people approach the environment or even climate change moving forward it's obviously impossible to predict the future but <laughs> can you offer some insight over here i wish i was the expert to tell you that <laughs> but uh, i'm i'm more of the the storyteller and the reporter i wish I wish that will go, that will be what happens, that people, it will change society for good. I think it could go two ways. It could definitely change our society for better, slow things down, continue being helpful to the environment. But I really think it depends on stakeholders to make decisions while us as a public people can still create public pressure. I think there's a lot that needs to be done with policy to have any long-term lasting effect. I think we are so in love with the, you know, our our way of living that definitely there will have to be, I think younger people are waking up or, you know, more everyday people, but it needs to be reflected in the policy to have any long lasting effect, in my opinion. Okay. And and have you seen any big changes in journalism or or environmental communications during this time? Yeah. Have you seen all the different FaceTime photo shoots that have been going on? So, I mean, people will have be chatting on Skype or FaceTime, and then even photographers will meet and collaborate with different people, take an interview, and then frame them within the video of how, however they want to take the picture, which I think is a very different approach that you have to have your subject kind of taking the picture for you and collaborating. It's it's more of a two way street now because it is you more can't get over there street. I would say I've also kept in. There's a media um, called Jubilee. I don't know if you ever seen their work. They're an American media outlet, and they do a lot of great stuff. It's not it's not so much storytelling and photojournalism, but it's getting different people to talk about different things. So they will have perhaps everybody coming on a line and then speaking on the spectrum if they agree or disagree with different things. So thinking like, do all veterans think the same? Do all Trump supporters think the same? Do all Democrats think the same? It's definitely in an American context. And then they, they've they received a lot of traffic. So they were hit pretty big by COVID-19 because everything has to do with a giant group of people in the same room. Yeah, uh, yeah. So what they did is they created some sort of way to have everybody be online and virtually place their stance um, exactly the same way that was in their videos. I thought that was super impressive. So, Do they host it on like something like a giant Zoom call or do you know must, how that works? It must be a certain Zoom call, but I think they must have created some sort of 
they they must have created the graphics within their video afterwards because uh-huh. it starts with everybody being sort of in a line and then everybody kind of making their way outwards within the frame to their position. So, I mean, you have people probably explaining what what they believe, explaining their opinions, and then stating where they want to be put, and then perhaps the designer, whoever's making the video, just places them in that in that spectrum. So I was really impressed with that. That that is super interesting. I want to jump maybe backwards and ask you tell the story of your story migration in Central America. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just tell us about kind of a little bit about how you set it up? Any memorable experiences that you had? while doing some research and and putting this this fantastic story together? So, like I said, I was never alone. I was extremely lucky to have contacts. So, actually, my I was very lucky to have my roommate that was also a reporter, a Costa Rican-American reporter, and she also had family that was on the border. And she had been doing a little bit of research on the migration of Cubans through Latin, through Central America over the past five years. And then what happened in 2016 is when Obama went to Cuba, there was a, a surged fear that the Cuban Act, I think, I'm sorry if I mistake that, I'm not remembering exactly. Yeah, there was some piece of legislation I also don't remember. It was a, it was a piece of legislation that, that could have been changed, so it was creating a surge of migration. It was at the same time that Brazil's economy completely crashed. And Brazil, after before hosting the World Cup and the Olympics, they had opened their their country, giving free visas to Haitians, especially those that were affected by the, the earthquake in 2010. So uh, after the, the crash of the economy, Brazil basically didn't have any jobs and said, get out. So then you had a surge of Cubans and Haitians all trying to go through Central America rather than typical waterway routes to get to the States. So I was, I had the contact of having a family that had been living in the town of Paso Canoas for 20, over 20 years um, due to the contact I have of my roommate as well. That was also a reporter that was interested in in doing the the story with me, um, so I was really lucky to have her by my side, and I also um, had a connection with another scholar that was um, an expert on Haitian migration history uh, and different human rights issues that are going on within the country and then within integration in the United States. So she, I think, she was doing her PhD. I'm not sure where, but uh, I had a lucky friend from university that connected me with her. Were you ever afraid? I, I noticed you've been to so many dangerous areas. Do you have no fear? Um, are you are you ever afraid when you're out in these conflict zones? And how do you how do you handle it yourself? See, I was probably started out being very adventurous. I think now going back, I would be a lot more cautious. Yes, I think it's natural to be afraid. That's a good thing. That's a, like a signal of survival. Yeah. <laughs> But I would, so yes, there were some moments that I was afraid, probably learning how to deal and negotiate with different cultures. But I was very lucky to never be in any situation that was never that bad. What do I can, what can I say about fear? I think there's different, maybe as well traveling solo as a female, there's Mm -hmm. a lot more, a lot more people are likely to help you. And there's a lot of perks because as a female photographer, people are 
I think open up easier to female journalists because they seem more approachable and they kind of pose less of a threat. But definitely there are other people that think that they might help you or, or they try to take advantage of you or especially being the American journalist. I mean, like just or having like fancy camera equipment around you, you're a huge target. Do you try to stay inconspicuous when you have, you know, camera gear that you know is expensive? For sure. I mean, my camera bag looks like hobo bag you know it's it doesn't look fancy at all you have to be really good at hiding your equipment but i think another thing is confidence if you look like you know what you're doing if you look like you're there on a mission most people respect you i would say the biggest thing i've learned in traveling is for every rotten person you meet you meet like five people that are just absolutely incredible willing to help you with your story um with your mission i think most people really are seeking to be understood. I think people want, you know, most people want to help naturally. So that's something I've learned in the majority. So if I went back in time, I would probably be a little bit more careful. You know, I started taking pictures abroad probably when I was like 20 and I'm 26 now. Mm-hmm. So I would probably tell the girl to be a little more, more careful, but I would say I was never shooting, you know, direct conflict. It's about telling people stories. I think if I had approached different stories of conflict, for example, I've talked to magazines that basically said to me, you know, that they might want more, I don't know, shocking pictures, you know, or maybe Mm -hmm. degrading pictures. And I think if there is a scale in journalism that there's a lot of photographers that think that that is the photo that you have to get to tell the story. And that's not, that hasn't been my approach, but had that been my approach, I probably would have had a lot more problems because you can be pissing off a lot of people. Do you you find that's often the case where, where a lot of maybe a lot of publications that approach you for a story, they'll ask for something more scandalous, something more dramatic as of recent. I have spoken to some people before. I don't want to say any names, but Mm -hmm. for example, talking about a certain number of people stuck on the border, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll call this back when it, you know, it's this number because they're thinking about the amount of clicks that they're going to get on the story. So that's a little bit disheartening. That's also why I changed my direction. So if you look at a lot of my more recent journalism, it's more about deep interviews with, you know, profiled people trying to talk about how change will be made because when you see so many issues you want to do something about them no over time yeah for sure. so yeah i would say i that definitely changed my aspect on telling pictures because i think what you learn in taking pictures of hard situations is you know is it really making a difference you know and i think in my experience i learned that it might increase the views but it doesn't necessarily increase the action or change or helping people to be understood. You know, it just creates kind of a frame um, and one more thing to read on the news. So I think I was searching for a different approach. So that's why I'm kind of exploring the, this idea of like what, how, how we address communications with the public. Why is the relationship that we have with communications in the public so different than actual deep telling sto- storytelling? Because I think everyone has a camera and everyone can take an amazing picture, but I think photographers and storytellers people that are naturally know how to kind of understand the psychology of different people and be able to frame that in the way that the general public can understand. I think communications is pretty overlooked in that aspect. So I'm, I'm trying to explore it a little bit more. 
it's kind of a blanket statement, but do you think there needs to be more empathy in communications? Or maybe a better question is, do you see a difference between communications and storytelling? Yeah, I mean, completely. Communications can be anything from, you know, the way a website is designed just so it gets your psychology so that you want to buy a certain product or so that you feel a certain thing. So it is manipulation to a certain extent or trying to get the viewer, whoever comes to your website, getting you to what you want to do. That's kind of the idea and aim of communications is com communicating a certain idea where I think storytelling in the same way, there can be a sort of manipulative, but I think storytelling kind of creates an in lasting impact. I think the best storytellers are the ones that, I don't know, they have so many different values or uh, morals within the ideas that they express, that it's not just like, here's the conflict and this is what's going on and you know, naming a stream of facts. I think storytelling, you can be talking about something in your backyard. And, you know, if you're really good at someone's going to remember how you describe that, you know, that's how the greatest writers, that's why their books are being, you know, read for so many years. And I would yeah, say yeah. that's the, that's the key. You no, know, that's, I think what every communicator tries to aim for though, you know, that's kind of like the, the golden level. Yeah. You want, you want to create this, this lasting impact, something that, you know, changes the way people think or, or even live. Yeah. I'd say like also with podcasts, no, like you kind of want to, you always want people to feel more connected after you have some sort of conversation or after you interview everybody, you know, I, I was reading a little bit on your website about, um, the idea behind will be student. I always thought it was super kind of funny, but then I also, I was reading your about and it was kind of, you know, talking about everyday people and where they are at in their life. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much how it started. It was it was really just between people I knew from back home and I was like, I want to catch up. I want to like see what this person's been up to, but then I wanted to talk to new people and ask them questions and and then it just grew and grew and then now it's like at this point, I guess it's just learning about people, but it can also be about movements and exploring these movements through individuals. Mm -hmm. But it's also it's also about for me it was a problem. I just saw a lot of I don't want to call it fakeness but there wasn't there's like the person being portrayed online wasn't exactly the person in front of me and i wanted to like bridge this gap in a way that I, that i knew how and and also present people in a way they they'd be happy with and and let them kind of create something as well you've you've sort of created a platform for other people to tell their stories as well like i don't know in, in the podcast in this you are a storyteller you sort of you frame it in a certain way so yeah, I say you kind of understand the same the same goal and the difference like that's between just basic communications and letting people say something and then framing it in a way that that creates an lasting impact. Hopefully that somebody remembers. So Hopefully, I, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to jump down into something more technical. Portraits. Can you walk us through how you how you take a portrait? Maybe you know, there's the image behind it, but then there's also this kind of you want to capture a bit of who they are, their personality. How do you how do you go about doing this from a technical standpoint, but then also from an interpersonal um, standpoint as well? Everyone's different. So like I said, some people want to be seen as glamorous. It all depends on what my mission is with the story. Somebody might want to be seen a little bit more dramatic. Um, but I would say when you look at my work, I, I like to use a lot more darker and moodier 
backgrounds. Uh, and then I always take a little bit of saturation out of my pictures. And then my go-to is my 50 millimeter and then using like 1.8 to 3.5 f-stops in terms of like technical. That's usually, I really liked it to be really wide in this focal tone. And then I always am trying to shoot outside if I can. But I try to do the dramatic, you know, light peeking in to make the skin look a little bit more dewy. Uh, and then I always do, a, I'm a big Photoshop girl, so I do a lot of heavy editing on different levels. Uh, and then always trying to change the, um, the color palettes a little bit. Uh, I think if you look at more of my stuff, there's definitely more of these greener, darker tones. I, I really try to go for a cinematic feel. I, mm -hmm. I, my love of photography is not just... Um, Definitely a lot of the photographers that I follow that I really admire their work is, is definitely this cinematic feel in the photo. I don't know, probably because there's an association with our mind that goes to movies, you know? So we see them more as a character, not just like an image. I don't know if that's something that's just yeah, in yeah. psychology, but when I see more cinematic photographers taking pictures, I imagine more of a scene because that's the, that's the sort of image and the layout that we associate with movies that we're seeing. So it might be something that's more easier for us to imagine what's going to be happening after because we're so used to these certain shades that are so popular in, in film. So talking about movies, do you have any movies, maybe yeah, movies that you really admire um, or you draw some inspiration from? Yeah, I mentioned one. Uh, if I met every photographer that's listening to this podcast has to go watch Everybody's Street on YouTube. It's for free. A absolute. Whenever I'm kind of wondering what to do with photography or how a story is told, um, it's just it's like a fluid film slash interview with some of the best and oldest photographers of film in New York since the fifties. Um, from shooting different Brooklyn gangs to um, different riots. And so, yeah, I, I would say that one. And so, yeah, definitely also one of my favorite photographers is on there as well. His name's Bruce Davidson. Um, so I definitely, you know, talking about riots, equality, um, depicting obvious differences in New York City that is just like, you know, you can have a model and then like somebody that's on the street, you know, and just something that we look past every day that when somebody takes a picture, it just shows something that's so obvious, you know, mm -hmm. and it just seems so dramatic, but really it's somebody, some guy that's shooting this on the street. So it's just drawing our eyes to the, to the things that we have been taught to kind of oversee every day. And I think he does it masterfully. Um, also, I would say another one is, I'm a big fan of Joey L. He was one of my favorite photographers when I was starting out. So mm -hmm. Joey Lawrence, he's also a New York photographer. He's also a director. Um, and I guess he he's primarily a photographer, but he has done different documentaries about his shooting and his storytelling. So I guess those are the my kind of go-to. I guess it's not really a break from photography because it's just like videos about photographers talking about how they shoot. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're pretty inspirational because it, they're just natural storytellers in everything that they do from like shooting the frame to, you know, talking about their journey. Like it's all a complete story that you can jump into, so. Um, Joel, he did one on Varanasi, India, 
And that I think I saw that when I was just beginning sports photography in 2013. And I saw that and I was like, wow, you know, and yeah, definitely like this, this kid in college just sees this and you can see and he's a really masterful storyteller. So I would recommend the, if any photographer has created a film, watch it, I guess. And this question just popped into my head, but like just talking about seeing things differently or having a different perspective, do you ever walk past something? Maybe it's like a sudden protest or a big movement and everyone around you is like, oh my God, what's happening? I got to get out of here. Do you, do you ever find this, like have this curiosity? Like, oh, I want to see what's going on. Do you, do you have this difference of reaction? I feel like this, this might happen with someone like you. Yeah, uh, you know, it kind of feels messed up, though, you know, because maybe yeah. if something's going on, there's something, it's kind of sick, there's something in your head, like, oh, you know, like, I really want to shoot this, um, and mm-hmm. I've been there where, especially in Berlin, there's so many protests, and there's all that, you know, you just get off the subway, and then there's some sort of demonstration going on, and I immediately stop, and I'm just like, wow, you know, like, this, I want to be shooting this, and look at, you know, you just scope out the dynamics immediately and my friends will be like okay what's wrong with you you know it's but uh, I would say trying to tell the story but if yeah I don't know if that really answers your question but definitely I would be more curious to know what is going on and if I can tell a story so I it's very natural I used to carry my camera everywhere with me just waiting for the right moment because that's how you get your best shots. Mm-hmm. And okay. most photographers that I speak to, that's that was their key because I would ask them, you know, like, how did you get these amazing shots? It's like, I always have my camera. Always. So. Good to know. Good to know. So so you've been doing this for a while now. I, I'd say you got, you've gotten pretty good at it. And, you know, there's a lot of people listening to, to this podcast who, who've, who've, a lot of people who've approached me as well, like, asking what what do I do like young people maybe they're in school still or just got out of school they ask what what do I do how to find my passion my purpose even um you know they see someone like you you're successful you got your shit together um do you have any advice for people kind of like trying to find out what they want to do looking for purpose uh yeah no I actually read a super cool quote that was basically something around the lines of you know whatever you think you are or whatever your identity of yourself is you try to seek that so I think the biggest issue with most people is they tend to box themselves in from a lot of creativity that they have so I I think people are really attached to concepts they have of who they are if they're an athlete but maybe they're not sure if that's their passion and maybe they want to go into the world of business or art or I don't know teaching so I think I guess if I gave advice to the idea of success is don't be afraid to experiment so I was an artist that started making money with photography and in the beginning that was my reason you know I was like why like everything but you know this seems to be a job for me And then I think people limit themselves to change because they're afraid of some sort of success that they can have in the future or if that will compromise who they are because we're really attached to who we are because we have this society that has our purpose and we want to have our identity and we want to know like our favorite things. So when they change, we really start to wonder if we, 
if the things that we love will change too. You know, will our friend group change? Will our relationship with our loved ones change? So yeah, I would say a lot of successful people, at least from what I see and what I read about people, is they're not afraid to jump into new sectors and suck at them for a while, but also they're not afraid to fall in love with different things. And sometimes when you find another passion, you might have to give something up or give something up about yourself. Uh, but time, I'd say like time's ticking every day. And this is your life. You know, don't be afraid to try something and hate it. You know, if you try, I don't know, some sort of art, if you try photography and, and decide you absolutely hate it and you just want to see it on the news, like, at least you know that. So people, when you don't know, when you know what you don't want, you're a little bit closer to knowing what you want. Mm -hmm. I would say that. Don't be tied to an image that you have on yourself. I never thought I would come to Germany. I, I, I hate the cold. Anybody that knows me, like, all my work is in the tropics. And... I absolutely think it was one of the best decisions because I, you know, you grow. So you don't, I think I sort of boxed myself in many years. I love surfing. Uh, I've always been attached to the ocean. Um, so I really kind of built out this image that I had of myself and saying like, this is what I love. This is what I'm good at. I'm a photographer. I'm this travel girl. And then I sort of turned around and said, well, okay, well, I'm going to go do my master's in Germany. And and here I am. So, but yeah, I say like, don't be afraid of change because that's life. We change all the time, whether we like it or not. So you can decide whether, and then you you figure out what you like more and more with those decisions. So that, that was a great answer. You know, I was even going to ask you a follow up question, like to tell me about a risk you've taken. But I think this jumping over to Germany is a perfect example. You know, there was there was some fear involved, but then you. You took the leap, and I, I think you're enjoying yourself out here. Yeah. From what I've um, seen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think everything you can do, and your master plan can shift a little bit more. So um, my approach to taking pictures and going from one place to another to being in the same place for a while, that was scary. But, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying myself so far. I've grown. I'm, I think I'm going to be a better storyteller. I'm a better photographer for the things that I'm studying. Um, I'm studying cultural diplomacy and international relations. So I learned a lot about um, dealing with different cultures on topics. And that's what I hope to focus on within communication. So there's always room for growth. Yeah. Solid. Very solid. All right. It's time to get weird. And I'm going to ask you a weird question. So... I want you to think about who Aaron is and compile a few adjectives in your mind, in your head. And I want you to take these adjectives and link them up with an animal. Then okay. I want you to tell us what your spirit animal is and why you chose this animal. I'd say a really good at navigation, um, really good at knowing where they're going, like physically, not always like psychologically or mentally you know in life but physically a uh, really good sense of direction sea lover but doesn't have to be in the water i'd say pretty calm uh but tend then they tend to go into survival mode really early in their life so i'd mm -hmm. say for that they're quite adventurous um at an early stage uh and actually they live quite long and and they see a lot, I guess, without becoming overly aggressive or uh -huh. 
And they also love the waves, which is. Did, did you mention the animal or did, did I miss No, it? I didn't. Okay, Sorry. okay. I thought you already said it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Do I say it? Yeah, yeah. I mean. Okay. I mean, it's a sea turtle. Oh, okay. I was going to guess like penguin or otter or something. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, a sea turtle. So. Sorry, I might have. I, I hope I didn't ruin this for you. <laughs> Actually, I never considered penguin, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna think of that now. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, sea turtle. That's pretty yeah. dope. Yeah, I don't know if it's because I really like them or, but yeah, I mean, they I think they have to kind of survive pretty quickly. They have to make it alive to hatch and then make it into the ocean without anything eating them. And then um, I actually learned this, but they're incredible navigators. So when you track them, um, but they always go to the same place to lay their eggs at least some species so yeah so they always know they always know where to go how to get home penguins are pretty cool though um i know that like they always have that pebble like mm -hmm. the, the male seeks out like the perfect rock to give to the female and i, I like watching them swim and but they're, i would never live in antarctica yeah i would never live in antarctica well that's the thing but actually mm -hmm. i've seen I could be a penguin in like Brazil or the Galapagos or something. Beach penguin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Okay, okay. So let's let's take this further. Um, Sorry. Hypothetical situation. No worries. I'm gonna paint a picture for you guys. So you are on an abandoned island. You're there for an extended period of time. Yeah. What is one thing you would bring for survival? Another thing that you would have with you to keep you occupied? and one person to keep you company? Uh, um, so survival, I would say uh, a machete because you can cut wood with it and you can kill things with it and cut up your dinner if you have to. Um, Multi-use uh, surfboard. If I was on an island, I hope there'd be waves. <laughs> be the best yeah. way time and person i would have to say uh diego my boyfriend because he's pretty smart and he knows how to grow and harvest food so i think my chances of surviving would be better if he was around yeah i think he's pretty good in a forest environment yeah, yeah. so i want somebody that can you know make sure the soil is good and we can grow things and survive in case i can't get off the island so always have someone smart around you Good, good motto. Um, so I guess that's that's a, about it. Do you have any questions before we wrap this up? No, I really want to thank you for your time. I, I guess if I wanted to ask you anything is um, a little bit about your journey, I guess, in communications. I know like you've also dipped a little bit into photography and podcasts, so you're also kind of and you do videos as well. So I know you sort of use media in a multitude. So I'm wondering if you have a preference. Um, I get, the, the way I went about it is I actually, with this Vobis Dude um, blog or website, if you will, I started out um, having it as a writing platform. Like I, I wanted to read other people's writing because I, I remember in high school, like we would, we would share each other's papers to edit and I really enjoyed reading other people's writing because you could get a piece of their personality. But I feel like a lot of people who maybe have started working in other places are kind of now more out of touch with, with writing. So I wanted to give people a chance to do that. But then from 
um, from that point, it jumped to interviews and then um, Skype interviews. And then people asked me, hey, can we do it on video? And I'm like, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing, but maybe we can just put my phone over here. And then and then I used the friend's action camera for, for an interview. And then, and then I figured, okay, I might as well get the minimal best quality of what I felt was like a presentable interview. And it turns out I'm still chasing that minimum, minimum quality, you know? Um, so it's kind of just like jump from one thing to another. I, I do enjoy kind of all of these different formats and I call myself a videographer now, but if 3d hologram technology comes along and, and it's like something that people, you know, on this platform want to see, I, I'd be willing to experiment with it if it's affordable. Got it. But, um, yeah, I, I do like, like getting to know people telling their stories, so I don't want to restrict myself to the format, but right now video is like something I'm, I'm really enjoying and diving deeper and deeper into. With photographs, it was like I first at first told myself I wanted to just do video, but then people kept asking for portraits. So I was like, all right, I have to learn how to do this on some sort of basic level. And now, now I'm working at that a little bit more. But I would say you're... Would you say you're a little bit more interested in the technical side, for example? I know so many photographers have really hated the evolution of digital photography, instant photography, and I think, but at the same time, it's opened the doors. For example, there's so many photographers that are kind of having to jump into the world of videography. And for me, it's it hasn't been something I'm good at, for example. I think I'm much more of a photographer than I would ever be a videographer. But for you, it's like, is it something that like with development of new technology and new ways of storytelling, you kind of just want to jump in and explore? Because I, I think I know other storytellers that are definitely more like old fashioned. Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to limit myself to one thing because of how quickly things change. I, I went, I took a photo class in, in high school we were already switching to digital. Like people wanted the regular film class, but the film photography teacher was just like, everything's going digital already. We can't teach this class anymore. I would say I don't want to limit myself. And I also think that the different disciplines can can teach you about the other ones. I, I've talked to videographers who say they've gotten so much better at, at their composition, at their setups for lighting interviews from doing still photography and portraits. And I, th I think just like a big part of my life philosophy is learning um, from some one discipline and applying it to another. Like I, I'm really into martial arts and martial arts philosophy, and I think it can be applied to so many other different things. And part of martial arts is kind of like taking what works and what doesn't and then making something that's like uniquely your own. That's kind of like what I'm trying to do here. I like to dive in on a technical level because I that's just kind of what I do. I get a little obsessed with the things I do, but... Um, I'm not afraid to kind of pick pick and choose things to tell the story. Like the goal is is the story and the technical part is very much tied to it. I don't want it to ever take away from the, the end, the end goal, the end result. I see. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned, I actually just started reading a book, The Art of War. I don't know. Oh, by I, Sun Tzu? Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know. How much I just started, so I don't know how much it has to do with, but it was kind of like the idea of like applying different sort of like battle strategies and the philosophy with your life. So 
That's yeah, kind of... that book is, I mean, it was written thousands of years ago, but people still use it in in business, in relationships. It's like, it's basically a book about strategy. So yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I thought about rebuying it. Like, of course you have to apply it to modern terms. Nobody has like 200 war chariots nowadays, but it's, yeah. it's a solid, solid book. Solid for business. Yeah. Cool. No, uh, I don't have any other questions. I just want to say like, thank you for having me and it was really cool to talk to you a little bit more about your experience as well and yeah yeah. i appreciate you coming on um i have a last question for you i guess for the for the people listening do you have any future projects um you're working on that you could tell us about yeah i can well i guess i'm working on communication strategies right now but i would they're with two really great organizations that I would like to share. So I'm working as the web designer and communication strategist for the youth network of the European Cultural Parliament. So it's called the ECPFG, European Cultural Parliament Future Generation. Um, And it's a youth group and a youth network for different artists and cultural managers and intellectuals, not just in Europe, but, you know, having some sort of European context and, and we try to lift young artists platform and, and kind of give them more opportunities within Europe. Um, so we work on really cool campaigns, like we're talking about art in the time of COVID-19. We're talking about, um, you know, the future of the EU. We talk about cultural identity. Uh, so if anybody's listening to this, it has some sort of artistic background, happens to be in Europe. Uh, would be great if they could apply. Um, and then I'm also doing a communication strategy with an NGO that you might also know, um, Gaia Link. So okay, uh, yeah. So starting to do their communication strategy. Um, and I'm really excited to see where they go as well because it's a really fascinating group of talented people. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, so I'm also very interested in this group as well. Cool. So yeah, if anybody wants to know, uh, then maybe you can place those links and yep, yeah, sure. have, tell somebody to pay, check out the ECPFG. And I know you're going to feature Guy in the future, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Yeah. So yeah, you um, depending on when this podcast comes out, either before or after that video comes out, we will, um, you guys will also see something from Guy Link. Uh, last thing, where can people go to just, if they want to see any of your work, any of your stories? www.aaronscotchless.com or erisco.com e-r-i-s-k-o.com okay all right everybody thank you for stopping by okay thank you so much